Well, we'll be continuing in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. So if you'd open there, that would be good. We'll be reading the chapter in a little bit. As we saw, Paul has been defending his ministry through most of the book. And part of the reason for doing that was he needs to collect the money they had promised for the poor saints in Jerusalem. They were suffering famine and persecution, and they were in dire straits. And so Paul has been working for a year to get the churches organized to bring a contribution. And before he could talk about the contribution, he needed to reestablish the fact that he was a true minister of God. Because he was being attacked rather fiercely in Corinth. And the church was being divided and confused. So once he had reestablished himself, he told them what they needed to do to make ready for the contribution. And then he goes back to defending his ministry a little bit. And now I think we really get to the core of what Paul needs to accomplish in Corinth. And that is the unmasking of his opponents. Originally, we read in 1 Corinthians, one follows Paul and another Apollos and another Cephas, another Christ. And so there were these divisions. But as we read through particularly 2 Corinthians, we find that these divisions involve other people. They seem to be teaching various things from the Jewish worldview, the unbelieving Jewish worldview, to the pagan around them worldview. And... They're using the skills they learned through the philosophy of the Greeks and the Romans to try and prove their various ideas and teachings and lead people astray and gain followers for themselves. And so Paul's been putting up with that as best he can, but now in chapter 11, he really, he, he calls it the way it is and tells them what's going on. And so we'll read that now, and then we'll consider verses 11, or 7 through 15 of chapter 11. Well, let's read the chapter first. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you by all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the God's, God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that their boasted mission, their work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, <coughs> deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, 
being wise yourselves. For you bear with it as someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone, whatever anyone dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift in the sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all the other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall to escape his hands. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, when we think, Lord, of divisions, when we think, Lord, of fighting between teachers, we often think, Lord, of the foolishness of it, that it would be good for men who have faith in you to listen to each other, to submit to your word, and to honor one another, and not be divided for pride. But we know also, Lord, as in the case here in Corinth, that these divisions come to the hands of the enemy who has infiltrated our ranks. And we pray, Lord, that as we go through this passage and think about it, that we start to take more seriously the things Paul is preaching about, the things that he is teaching the church, the things that he is calling them to deal with. So we pray, Lord, for your grace, that we might teach the truth in love, and your grace, that we might receive the truth and put it into action. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what Paul had been doing by preaching God's gospel free of charge was trying to unmask and undermine his adversaries. Here he is, the divinely appointed apostle to the Gentiles, and he's being mocked, ridiculed, undermined, the testimony he's given destroyed, the gospel he's given destroyed. And think about what he says in this, in this next passage. That, oh, in this passage, that you know, if they receive another spirit, they receive it well enough, but there's only one Holy Spirit. They receive another gospel, there's only one gospel. They receive another Jesus, there's one true Jesus. You know, what are these people teaching? That Paul puts it in that manner. He, he's trying to expose them for what they are so that people will not be confused. You know, which way do I go? Do I go to the, you know, the morning service where I have Paul or the late morning service where I have you know, Jim Jones? Uh, they're, they're confused. They're deceived. And he's trying to set that all straight. And one of the things he's doing, he's humbling himself, preaching the gospel for free as a means of differentiating himself from these false teachers. He wrote of this at length back in 1 Corinthians, and I'd like to read that, so if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to read a fair portion of it and talk about it. 
This is First Corinthians five, chapter three, or verse three. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or it is only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Paul was a soldier of the cross. Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? The church is the vineyard of God. Who tends the flock without getting some of the milk? The flock is, again, another symbol of the people of God. It's only natural that when you work, you get paid for your services, and they should have been paying Paul for his ministry. Verse 8, he continues, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the Lord say the same thing? Or the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen God is concerned? Ox is an animal created by God to serve mankind? It's not about that. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Yes, it is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow with the hope, and the thresher should thresh with hope and sharing in the crop. You do the work, you get paid, you get a share. He goes on to say, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much for us to reap material things from you? Now think about what Paul had sowed. And he brought them the ministry of reconciliation, as he calls it back in chapter 5, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians. He brought them the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, the only way sinners under God's wrath and curse can be reconciled to him. The only way to enter the kingdom of God, through Christ, through the gospel. He brought them that great treasure once hidden in a field, that pearl of great price from Matthew 13, 44 and 46. Something worthy of them selling all that they had to buy. Should not he as a servant of God whose ministry was used by the Holy Spirit to transform their souls? Should he not receive their financial support for the work he was doing, the work of bringing them this greatest treasure the world has ever known. Continuing in verse 14, he says, But if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? And he makes mention in this book both of the true apostles and of these false apostles. The true apostles, yes, deserve support. The false apostles, you know, they're, they're joining in sin by helping heretics by helping false teachers further their cause. They were just fleecing the flock, these false teachers. But Paul, as that divinely appointed apostle to the Gentiles, had the right to their support, their financial support. Nevertheless, he says, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Now, what obstacle would being paid be? Uh, we guess through reading the book, and we've talked about it in the past, they seem to be accusing him of being a peddler, only you know, selling his teachings for money, because that's what they were, and that's what they did. And that's what all of the Greek and Roman philosophers did. And they were just following that tradition of their local environment that you come up with a better idea than somebody else and you get followers and they give you money. And so they were trying to come up with better ideas than the ideas of Scripture, the teachings of Paul and Jesus, and lead us people astray after that. And he's saying, if I do what they do, if I start taking money, they're going to be able to claim, see, I'm just another one of these philosophers. Don't follow me, they'll say, follow them. And by not taking money, he's proving that he's not one of them. He continues on in verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who, ser share, who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This was Paul's divinely appointed task to be 
the one bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, he was to be paid. He was not to do this on his own. Now, some people are volunteers, but some have given their whole life full-time to the work of teaching the gospel. They should be paid for that, is what his point is. But he said, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. I have not made use of these rights, he continues on in 15, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than if anyone deprived me of my ground for boasting, boasting that he's not one of them, that he doesn't take the money from them, that he's doing this for the glory of God, the kingdom of God, and the good of the people of Corinth. Verse 16, continuing, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. So he's not boasting about the gospel and his wisdom, his knowledge, his, you know, his idea. It's God's idea. God was the one who came up with the plan of salvation. Paul doesn't get any credit for that or any glory for that. But he says, if I preach the gospel, I have no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. What necessity? God appointed him to that task. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He would be condemned for not doing the job God gave him to do. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. This idea of stewardship is very important in the ministry because we are not the leaders, pastors and elders. We are stewards of the kingdom of God that hopefully have been appointed by God. And the idea seems to really be lost on the church today, but it's important because it comes up repeatedly in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. They preach the whole counsel of God. Paul says that in Acts 20, 27. He doesn't soft pedal the word, as he mentioned back in chapter 2, 17 of 2 Corinthians. He doesn't tamper with the word, as he mentioned in 2 Corinthians 4, 2. People want to make it acceptable. They want to make it comfortable for sinners. They want unbelievers to be able to stay in the church and not feel convicted of their sin and leave. And Paul says, we don't do any of that. And also, Paul understood that if he failed to teach the whole counsel of God, if he failed to tell the Jews who were trusting in salvation by their obedience to the law, that that doesn't work because they have disobedience. They need Christ. If he didn't tell the idolaters that the idols cannot save you, you need Christ. And God and Christ cannot be worshipped through idols. If he didn't tell them these things, yeah, he probably wouldn't have been persecuted as much. But he would have been guilty of the blood of those who die in their sins. Remember we read Ezekiel 36, or 33 rather, where in verse 8 God says, if I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that per wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Pastors will be required to give an accounting. Elders will be required to give an accounting. Teachers will be required to give an accounting for the souls that God has entrusted to them mentioned also in Hebrews 13, 17. If they don't preach fully like Paul is doing and they're mocking him for, then they will be guilty of the blood of those sinners who don't know to turn from their sin. He continues in verse 18, what then is my reward in my preaching that I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? For though I am free from all, I have made myself servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. How did he do that? Well, he would submit himself to Jewish regulations when he preached in the synagogues. When he went to Jerusalem, he would join himself in a Jewish vow to help offset the fears of some of the Jews that he was trying to destroy the Jewish faith. When he wasn't, he was trying to show them their Messiah and have them follow their Messiah as the completion of the Jewish faith. But he, uh, he made himself a servant, being like the Jews to the Jews, to 
to those under the law, I became as one under the law, but not being under the law myself, but that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, in other words, he would restrain himself to the law of Moses amongst the Jews and the people under the law, not eating things that he wasn't allowed to eat, not wearing things he wasn't allowed to wear, following the customs that Moses set forth as the, the law that was like the schoolmaster to lead them to their need for the Messiah to pay for their sins and not being able to do it themselves. He wasn't under that anymore because he knew Christ. And he knew the meaning of all of those things and it was now past. He didn't need to, but he did it to be able to reach them because they would not listen to him if he didn't do it. And to those not under the law, He acted like one not under the law, even though he is under the law of Christ. In other words, the moral law is still applicable, but he, was not, he would not insist on all of those things because the Jews would not eat with a Gentile. He set all of that aside, would eat what they fed him without complaint, without questioning its um, kosherness, because he needed to do that to reach them, and it was no longer an important point. He wanted to win them to Christ. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. That was 1 Corinthians 9, 3 through 23. So, so Paul in Corinth, and in, he mentions verse 10, Achaia, was willing to suffer by serving, and humble himself, by serving unpaid by them in order to silence the gospel's adversaries who are apparently accusing Paul of being like them, only in it for the money, and just a, another philosopher teaching for cash. And so Paul doesn't take it, so while they are trying to fleece the flock, he is showing them, it's not for money that I'm here. Accepting support from other churches so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. We talked about this at length back when we talked about the collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Paul's support came through God's grace from the Macedonian churches. And at other times in his ministry, it came from his tent making, as he worked with his own hands so that he could deliver the gospel. Paul needed to make that big distinction between them, that he wasn't one of them. All they were after was their pride and their greed and their money, and that was not what Paul wants humbled himself by showing himself to be contemptible in their sight. Oh, you don't even get paid for your teaching. And he said, yes, that's what makes me different. I'm teaching Christ, and Christ is the one who will provide for me. So he continues on. That's kind of my summary of the first part of this text, the first verses. And he, he explains why he needed to do this. They were boasting they were on the same level to him. They were calling themselves superior to him. Their ministry was just like his ministry. And he's saying, no, it isn't. But they were saying, you know, we're the same, but let me tell you where Paul is wrong. Let me tell you why he's inferior and you should listen to me. They were saying, let's show where he went wrong and, and teach you our beliefs so that you'll be better. Oh, those things in Scripture that offend your cultural sensibilities? Well, that's just Paul being harsh. Follow us and we'll not offend you with the Bible's teachings. We'll offer you the corrected version of them for your culture, for your desires. In other words, tampering with the Word of God, which he says in chapter 4, verse 2 of this book. They might be saying things like, Paul says your cultural way of life is sin. You know, worshiping idols, trusting in obedience to the law of Moses. Well, don't worry about it. If you do those things, you will not surely die. After all, you are not under law, but under grace. Paul should keep such legalism to himself. I'm using today's arguments. and you know, There's nothing new under the sun. It happens over and over and over and over again. Paul is fighting the same battle that we have today in the churches. They might be saying, oh, those are just Paul's Jewish cultural beliefs from far back in history. 
Our culture is more evolved. We can do better. We don't need what he's teaching. We need what we teach. And over and over again, that has happened through history. People want to modernize or culturalize the church. They might be saying things like, let us teach you an easy faith with messages of happiness and days of comfort and hearts that are not troubled by sin. Rather than Paul's call to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1.10. If you do that, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow Christ. And that's too much to ask. Even though that's what Jesus requires of his followers in Luke 9.33. And so... You know, they were driving people away from God and away from Christ, soft-pedaling the word, tampering with the word to make it appealing and to show, see, my, my interpretations are much more pleasing to you than Paul's. Follow me. And thus he calls them false apostles. They were not appointed to be apostles by God, as Paul and the others were. They simply saw Paul's work, the conversion of sinners, the authority that brought him, the power and the honor and the praise to God that went through him, and the respect that he had. And they were envious. Nothing else to it. They coveted Paul's success. And that's why instead of sticking with their pagan Greek nonsense, they tried to adopt the Christian Bible, the Christian teaching and then, of course, they had to fix it because the things that are spiritually understood can only be understood by those who have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, you're going to follow the truth of the Word. And if you don't have the Spirit, you don't understand those things and their foolishness to you, and you need to correct them. You need to tamper with the Word so that you can peddle it for your profit. And one of the... These were men who simply had appointed themselves and appointed their own followers to be teachers. Later, the Apostle John would deal with the similar issue, and he put it like this. Children, it is the last hour, and yet as, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. For that we know this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they are not of us. For if they had been of us, they would continue with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Antichrist simply here is one against Christ. You may remember from when we preached through John's epistles. And these false tent teachers are also against Christ. They're preaching a different Christ than the one they received, a different spirit, a different gospel. That makes them against Christ. And they are trying to lead the church and the children of God astray for their own purposes. So he calls them false apostles, deceitful workmen. We've talked about the deceitfulness of them at length in the past, and remember 2 Timothy chapter 4, they were the ear ticklers. They tampered with God's word to, seek the, to suit the sinful passions of their hearers so that they could gain more and more popularity, more power, and more wealth. <coughs> and that alone was enough to condemn them. And here's the thing. I think is most important in what Paul wants to say. They were disguising themselves as servants of righteousness, as servants of God. But it's apparent since they're teaching a different Christ and a different, giving a different spirit and a different gospel, it's apparent that they don't know God. They don't understand the spiritual things, so they're fixing them to be understandable by the unspiritual, those who don't have the spirit of God. And they're doing this by disguising themselves, pretending to be of God. John wrote about this, about knowing God truly. He writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, 
By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. These false teachers were slandering Paul, undermining the scriptures, in an effort to gain followers and get money. Certainly they were not keeping God's word at all. And therefore, they didn't know God. It can be assumed. Well, it's claimed. They were distinguishing themselves, or that they were disguising themselves as God's servants, shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise that ravenous wolves rise up amongst the flock claiming to be the shepherds. We're at war. The kingdom of God is at war with the domain of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus. Some people don't think Satan has power or control over the world. They think Jesus does, but not yet. When the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. If they didn't belong to, G- to the- Satan, Satan wouldn't be able to offer them. Jesus would say, those don't belong to you, they belong to me. No, they belong to him. And that's why it was a temptation. Otherwise, it would be pointless. It wouldn't be a temptation at all. And so Satan owned all the kingdoms of the world. When Adam sinned, he left the fold of God and became a citizen of the kingdom of Satan and all of his descendants after him. Now, I think from reading the Genesis account that Adam was repentant and worshipped God and you know the sacrifice of animals to give him clothes to wear was a blood sacrifice. And I, I think that he is one of the redeemed in Christ. Christ was promised to him as the one who would crush the head of Satan. But he brought all of mankind into separation from God and into the camp of the devil, the citizens of Satan's kingdom. And all mankind would perish as God's enemies if it weren't for Jesus. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, First Corinthians, or Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Of course, we're talking about their disguise in these two kingdoms. They're enemy soldiers putting on the uniform of the kingdom of God and attempting to deceive the people of God. I remember watching a movie, I think it was The Battle of the Bulge, and it turned out one of the enemy, the Nazis' tricks, was they had whole groups going out to different places dressed in American uniforms and speaking fluent English. And they were changing road signs to trick people, to go, the American soldiers, to go the wrong way. They were blowing up bridges, or not blowing up bridges, to allow the, they were pretending to blow them up. They were doing all kinds of things to sow confusion and to lead the Americans astray so they couldn't offer a good defense so the Nazis would be able to plunge through. And that's what I always think about when I think about this. That's what these false teachers are. They're like those Nazi spies pretending to be Americans. They're you know, godless, pretending to be godly, condemning the godly, as these people were condemning Paul, and teaching godlessness. And that's no surprise, because that's what Satan does. He pretends to be an angel of light. And that war that we are at will continue forever and until... You know, the end of the age, not for all eternity. In Revelation 12, we read that war arises in heaven and Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fight back, but they're defeated. And there's no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient servant, serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. 
Note that he's called the deceiver of the whole world. Mankind follows Satan in part because Satan is deceiving them. And Satan's servants are participating in Satan's deceptions and they are deceiving the people of the world. That goes all the way back, of course, to the Garden of Eden when we read in chapter 3 of Genesis, starting at the first verse, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, and he starts off with his deceptions, his tricks, and she follows Satan and is deceived by him and eats the fruit she was forbidden to eat. That's why, say, why Peter warns us, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse Peter 5, 8. They were serving Satan. Now, I've been saying these various teachers of various different heresies. You know, there were probably idolaters by reading this. There were certainly Jewish people who were teaching salvation through the law and the necessity of the law. And there may have been various kinds of Greek sects of philosophy and religious views as to how to live your life and how to be saved and how to go to, go to be with God. But all of them seem to have been tainted with the scholasticism, with the, with the Greek and Roman philosophical tools for winning arguments. And that's what they are. We sometimes think, oh, the logic of the Greeks and the Romans and their philosophy can help us. My proposition would be their logical rules are tainted by their sinful nature. And they were used as tools to get people to follow your beliefs, not the truth. And as such, when people use those, it always ends up counterproductive to, to the work of the gospel. We don't need fine-sounding arguments, as Paul calls them and says he will never use. We need simple, clear truth. And so they were all tainted with the Greek and Roman philosophers and teaching their various persuasions and perversions and disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. Now those Jewish leaders that Paul is dealing with throughout the Greek and Roman Empire, Jesus also had to deal with. And he said of them, you are of your father the devil and do the will of your father and do his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. John 8, 44 and following. Now, these Jewish leaders who are teaching their view of the law of Moses, their interpretation of how you can be perfect by doing certain things and how you can pay for your sins by doing other things and wait, you know, it, the good versus the acts of the law versus the sinful acts. As long as you have better acts of the law, you're saved. That was their basic teaching. And he says, you're servants of your father, the devil. Jesus warns us to watch out for false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, excuse me, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every tree bears good fruit and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he goes on and gives that horrifying statement. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive demons in, out in your name? Did we not perform many miracles? I would tell you them plainly, 
I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. We all know that part of the story. But his point is, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. And what are their fruits? Attacking the truth, attacking the scripture, or defending the truth in the scripture? Or, or is it in lies and treachery? which is what the, his enemies were doing? Or is it in honesty, integrity, in simplicity? Remember, we talked about that back in the beginning of the book. Simplicity is the idea that you have one thought, one purpose, not a hidden, secret, deceitful purpose, which the philosophers often have. And we fall into trouble when we use that. We get into a discussion and we try to manipulate the person into saying something wrong so that we can prove that we're right. And that's one of the tools of Greco-Roman philosophy in their argumentation, their rhetoric. You manipulate the person into stumbling and then exploit their stumble. Now, Paul had simplicity. He wasn't doing that. He was, the truth is the truth. While these false teachers disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, Christians should not be deceived. Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arrive and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, thankfully, it's not possible. That was Matthew 24, 24. Why is it not possible? Well, because we have the Spirit in us, but because we also have the solution to this problem explained to us in the book of Second Corinthians in a number of places. <coughs> if we look at the book of Acts, we see the solution in chapter 17 with the Bereans. That was a nightmarish trouble in Thessalonica, and Paul had to leave at night. And as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. Many, believer, many Jews believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Acts 17, 10 through 12. So what happened? Paul preached the word. And remember now, Paul is preaching things that are only alluded to in the Old Testament. We have them clearly stated in the New Testament, but the New Testament was what he's writing now when he writes this letter to the second, second letter to the Corinthians. They were examining the scriptures of the Old Testament to see if what Paul was saying about the Old Testament, teaching about the coming of the Christ and the things that Christ would do and what he needed to do for them, die for them. And all of those things, including the banning of idolatry, the you know, turning aside from the law as some sort of means of salvation because it is not only condemnation comes through the law. You know, they were carefully examining the scripture to try and understand and, and uh, validate what he was saying. We need to receive the message of the Bible with great eagerness and test what the person, the teacher, the pastor, the minister, the evangelist, whatever the person may be, test to see whether it is in agreement with Scripture. And so studying the Scriptures is really critical to our Christian walk. And it's critical to our not being led astray by a deceiver. It's critical to our long-term faith and growth and health in Christ. And that's how we can tell the false teacher from the true teacher is the true teacher's that God has given to the church, teach what is in agreement with Scripture and not what is opposed to Scripture. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that this was really the purpose that God has given such people to the church, given teachers and pastors and evangelists. It was he, Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. 
So all of God's people are being built up by the pastors and teachers to be able to serve and that their service may build up the church from within. Right? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and have knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I think we've spoken of this before, but we learn and we grow and we grow, and as we grow and the other people grow, the things that divide us will disappear because we'll have the same understanding of the same scriptures and the same understanding of what God wants of us. That is their purpose. But note what he says next is what's probably happening in Corinth. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. That's what's going on in Corinth. These deceitful workmen, these false teachers, these false apostles, false pastors. They've been scheming and deceitful to lead astray followers after themselves. And no doubt they each had their own set of doctrines that they would emphasize and their own set of doctrines they would exclude. And people could pick and choose amongst them to find the one that you know, gave them the Jesus they wanted. And I remember my father sharing a book with me, How to, how to, devise, or, how to devise or Invent a Better God. The God of the Bible is 2,000 years old at least, two to 4,500 years old. You know, it's useless for God, for modern society. We need a better God that serves us better. And they were probably doing something along those lines with the scripture by peddling it, by tampering with it, giving them options in their deceitful scheming. But if we are mature through our knowledge of God, through our knowledge of the Son of God, through the scriptures, then we won't be blown and tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. That was Ephesians 4, 11 through 15. Now, the solution to their problem is to spend more time studying God's word, more time listening to truth and exercising more discernment. We read in this chapter 11 clearly they were giving anybody who said, I speak for God, full ear, full attention, and being led astray. And they weren't able to discern what was right and what was wrong. He finishes this thought, Paul does, saying that their end corresponds to their deeds. Christ will return. Christ will call every person to account and God will repay them for what they've done. If they are deceivers who have led many astray, I think their condemnation will be far more severe than the people who follow them. But their condemnation will come. They will be cast with the devil, with the beast, with the false prophet, and all the false teachers and all their followers will be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. Now, you might be tempted to say, oh, this is too harsh for people who might be believers. So not all of these teachers are teaching against God. Well, aren't they, I would argue. You might say some people soft-pedal the word, trying to get unbelievers to join the church and stay in the church and hear the preaching and not be offended so that one day they can but they're hoping God. And well, from a logical standpoint, I will say, if you don't preach the truth, how will they be convicted of their sins? And if they're not convicted of their sins, how will they repent of their sins and turn to Christ? And therefore, it's going to be very hard. And oh, one day they will hear something that will convict them. Yes, but if you've been overlooking it, soft peddling it and correcting it for the previous days, they hear you. They're not going to believe it when you do say it. If you've been lying to them, and they like the lie, and the lie is sweet, it is honey on their lips, then when you do preach the truth, they're not going to listen to it. 
They're going to say, no, no, you said this before, and that's what I'm going to trust. And so that hope, I think, is a foolish hope. But more importantly than that, God makes it clear that you'll be guilty of the blood of a person who doesn't hear of their sin in your church. If you never, ever, ever preach about homosexuality, if you never preach about adultery, if you never preach about the place of the order in the family, husband, wife, children, you never preach those things that might be offensive. You never preach that greed is idolatry. You never preach that covetousness is sin, whatever it may be, that idolatry is sin. Paul's biggest obstacles were when he preached idolatry was sin, the idolaters wanted to kill him. When he preached that trusting in the law of Moses for salvation, when it only convicts you of sin, the Jews wanted to kill him. And he goes on to say, what happens next? You know, flogged and stoned and everything else, arrested, imprisoned. But if you don't say those things, how will they know to repent? And if you're guilty of their blood, does that mean you'll go to heaven? Or does it mean you're guilty of murder and you get the place with the murderers? I think that's what God is saying. I think this is more serious than the church remembers. And what I have seen when I deal with people who are in the you know, area of we accommodate them, we, we update Christianity for our current culture, we don't do things that would stumble people or offend them and make them leave the church by convicting them of their sins. I always find in the end that they're as hostile to godly pastor as these people in Corinth were. And I think the same condemnation is for them that is for the people of Corinth. And the same danger for us if we support such people and help such people even though they have turned against the word of God. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, the application of the things Paul says in this chapter, and especially in this short section, is very hard. We want to love our brother as ourself, but we don't want to be guilty of supporting false teachers and false ministries. And so the discernment is painful and difficult. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to turn to your word, turn to you, and hope in you, and hope that really some of these people are not enemies of the cross, but are just a little confused and can repent of their sin if they're called on it. And so help us, Lord, to be confident in you, and to follow you and to serve you faithfully and to not further error and sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.